Father, this Sunday morning brings us together once again for the study of your word, for a time of worship and fellowship, Father, a time in your presence as always. And Father, despite what may go from week to week and in our various lives, what may go on and in some ways uh, pull us away from the study, pull us away from time and prayer, Father, it's so easy in our walk to step out of a routine that we should otherwise give attention to. We all know what that's like, Father. And you know what that's like. You've seen it in us before. You saw us even before we knew you. And so, Father, we know that though you are patient, you do call us to be obedient, to give time to your word, give time to prayer, give time to all the things that cause the body of Christ to grow and to grow closer together. And so, Father, we are thankful that we have been gathered here again this morning so that we might continue in that Christian discipline that applying ourselves to study and applying ourselves, Father, in worship even and applying ourselves, Father, in love for one another and in lifting one another up. And, Father, as we pray this morning for guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit as we study, that we may understand better what you have for us in the Word. We also lift up, Father, the needs of the fellowship. We lift up the needs of families who have illness, Father, families who are in travel and have uh, the holidays, Father, pulling them into so many activities. We praise you, Father, that we do have a time like the holiday season, like Christmas time, to remember the birth of your Son. And we pray, Father, that the celebration itself wouldn't overshadow its purpose, that even as we participate in all that goes on at this time of year, we would never let those activities, Father, become the central purpose in our hearts and minds, but rather in all things to glorify you and to glorify your Son. And likewise this morning, Father, we do all that we do here because of your Son, because of his Word, and because of his work. And we thank you, Father, that you've given us this opportunity. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. In Luke 12, Luke 12, 51, Jesus says this. He says, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, son against father. Mother against daughter, daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. It's a provocative statement, wouldn't you agree? It causes us, I would imagine, to pause at first. We, We hear him say those words and then we kind of question in our minds, did he really mean what he said? Did he really mean the way it sounded? Especially at Christmas time. It's in... Always the case that people remember Christ's birth. We sing the songs like we did this morning. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And then you read in Luke 12, Christ says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came, in fact, to bring division. And division within families at times. Although we'll study the full meaning of these verses when we get there in a few weeks, obviously. It's actually appropriate today to consider what he's saying in Luke 12 as it applies to what we're going to see him do in Luke 7. And in fact, we'll begin to understand a little bit of it today, even as we wait to understand fully in chapter 12. Luke's story of Jesus has followed several storylines, which I have brought to light as we've gone through this gospel already. There's multiple themes, multiple storylines being taught simultaneously through this book. The last two weeks, as I said, we watched as he demonstrated to his apostles the truth of his teaching from chapter 6. So one of the themes is living out what he's teaching, demonstrating to the apostles what it will look like to live a life of righteousness and to bring the gospel message. 
But then, as we read earlier in this chapter, he was interrupted in his teaching, in his demonstration to the apostles, from messengers coming from John the Baptist, asking him who he really was. Is he the Messiah? Did he come to fulfill all those prophecies? And he confirms that he was the Messiah by showing his power, by demonstrating the truth of the prophecies concerning his abilities to heal, etc. These events also follow an important storyline in Luke of how Jesus is going to demonstrate who he is through his power, that he is all man but also all God. And now Luke is ready to return in this last part of chapter 7 to a theme that I addressed earlier in our teaching, the third theme, and that is of how he is contending with the religious leaders of the day for trying to prove what righteousness is and to show how the religious leaders of the day were dead set against him and against his teachings. So this ongoing battle between the religious leaders of his day and himself, Jesus, is another theme of Luke. And now that theme is going to be at the forefront for today. He's going to take us back into the scheming and the plotting that's going on amongst the Pharisees and about how Jesus contends with them, how he shows them to be who they really are. And that's where we're going to go now in Luke. Luke chapter 7, verse 24. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you. Who will prepare your way before you? I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Well, remember Jesus had entered Nain last week. And as he came into the city, remember he met the widow with the dead child, the dead son. He raised the dead son. And as he did that, it caused fear among the people. And of course, it also caused them to glorify God. Then the word of this miracle we heard had gone out from that town, eventually reaching John. John the Baptist, having heard of that miracle, thought, okay, I knew he was healing people. I knew he had some power and he was a prophet. But raising people from the dead? Well, I need to find out if this is the Messiah. And he sends his messengers to ask that question. Based on that that, uh, series of circumstances, it's safe to assume that the events now that we're reading in this part of chapter 7 come some number of days, maybe even weeks, after he had originally arrived at Nain and raised the boy. Because you know there has to be time for the the news to get back to John and for his messengers to come to him. So at least a few days, maybe longer, pass between the beginning of chapter 7 and the point where the messengers arrive and talk to Christ. So they arrive, they find Jesus, no doubt in the midst of a crowd, teaching as usual. And as they approach and they ask the question, Jesus answers, as we saw last week, by continuing in his miracles, proving who he was according to the prophecies. And then they've left. And in the moment they leave, it's in this moment that he turns his attention back to the crowd and he uses the occasion of their visit as an opportunity to go off on a bit of a tangent, really, a teaching in the moment that's tied to John. And presumably he wasn't on that topic before they showed up. So here we are at verse 24. He turns to the crowd and he asks sarcastically, and I hope you heard that in his language, he starts in a very sarcastic tone, 
to the crowd. And he says, what did they go out in the wilderness to see? Now, what you have to remember is this is the same crowd, perhaps, by and large, who followed John the Baptist. There's probably some new people, certainly, but many of the folks that are now around Jesus basically left John's ministry and began to follow Jesus. So his point to the crowd is, in effect, a reminder to why they even followed John the Baptist in the first place. So for some in the crowd, this is actually something that personally affects them. Now, for others in the crowd who never were around John the Baptist, it's just a teaching opportunity. His question basically is this. What was their interest with John the Baptist? The crowd, remember, had just heard Jesus answering John's questions about who he was. But do you notice he answered the question to John's disciples in a very veiled way? It didn't come out in a very clear way unless you understood the prophecies. Those who knew God's word and believed it would have instantly recognized Jesus' response when he says, and he quotes out of Isaiah, the the references to him prophetically about his ability to heal. They would have put the two together. They would have seen what he was doing. They would have understood what Isaiah said would happen for the Messiah. And having seen the two, they would have recognized this man is fulfilling those prophecies. He must be the Messiah. But the rest of the crowd, if you weren't familiar with God's word, much less believe in it, what Jesus said to the disciples would not have made much of an impression. It wouldn't have taught you much about who he really was. And that was part of the plan. Jesus is looking at this crowd, as we all should look at the world, two kinds of people again. There are those in this crowd who have an ear to hear and know the word of God and are being called into faith and therefore recognize the Messiah. And then there are those who are dead to the moment. And yet they're following Jesus anyway. Yet they're in the crowd anyway. And so he's planning to put the crowd, this group of people that have gathered around him, on the spot concerning the meaning of all these events. He's using this moment to actually make them a little uncomfortable and tease out of them. Why are you here? Why are you following me? And he begins with John. He says, why did you go out and see John for that matter? Did you go out to see a reed shaken in the wind? Now that phrase, a reed shaken in the wind, has a very unique meaning. And for us, it doesn't translate very easily. The word for reed in Greek is kalamos. K-A-L-A-M-O-S. Kalamos. And it simply means the tall, hollow grass. And when you think of grass, don't think so much of a blade of grass. Think of more like bamboo or cattails. Something with a round, hollow stem grows up by water and stands tall and stiff. And those reeds, of course, gather in clumps wherever there's water. He's talking about that kind of reed, calamos. In Greek mythology, there was a tale of two young boys who were very good friends. They played at all times together. They were inseparable. And one day, one of the boys, a boy, the two boys' names were Karpos and Kalamos. Well, the boy, Karpos, falls in the river and drowns. And his playmate, Kalamos, is so taken by grief over the loss of his friend Karpos that his grief makes him turn into a water reed where he is forever then on the banks of the river where his friend died, mourning his friend. And the reason they say that this reed, Kalamos, is mourning his friend is that when those reeds die and dry out and they end up as hollow sticks sitting in the ground, the wind rushing through them blows over the tops of these hollow reeds and makes a moaning sound, like, a, like if you take an empty Coke bottle and blow across the top of the empty Coke bottle. And if you're ever out in the wilderness for any length of time and you're in this kind of a setting and you see that the reeds are there and the wind's blowing, you hear the moaning. And that's where the Greek myth came from. That's the moaning, mourning cry of Kalamos, 
missing his friend Carpos. And that's where the myth came from. So when Jesus turns to them and says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Did you go out in the wilderness to see a reed shaken in the wind? To hear the moaning? To hear somebody just talking? To hear the senseless babbling of a man out in the wilderness? To hear his noise, in other words. That's what he's asking them. Did you go out there just to hear a noisemaker? Someone you came to observe and listen, observe and listen to? And I guess you can compare it in our experience to like slowing down to watch a car wreck. You know, you're just there because of the fascination over it. You're not really interested in what's going on. It's just that you can't, be, you can't help but look at it and listen to it because it's a spectacle. Is that why you went out to see John? He asks. Or perhaps you came out to see a man dressed in fine clothing, he says again, sarcastically. A man of importance. A man of importance in his own right. A celebrity. Perhaps a religious leader of some importance. A king even, maybe. And then he says, a king, a leader who's going to come in with some particular point of view that you might rally around, they're not found in the wilderness. He says they're found in a splendid palace somewhere. That's not what John was. He says, if you want that, you, need to, you were looking in the wrong place. You see, Jesus knew the heart of the men and women that were gathered around him better than they knew their own hearts. He knew that when men and women of his day, of Jesus' day, first heard of John the Baptist, they were curious and they wanted to know more, but many of them came for their own reasons. They weren't all coming because of the main reason of John the Baptist's ministry. They weren't hearing the Holy Spirit. They weren't feeling the conviction over their sin. They were not coming for repentance. Some came rather for entertainment. Some came just for the spectacle of this crazy man on the side of the river you know, dunking perfectly clean people into water. What a bizarre thing. They had never seen that done before. It was a spectacle. They didn't care for his message. They certainly weren't going to hear any of it. It wasn't penetrating them. None of it made any sense. And then there were those who might have come down to see if John was the one they had been waiting for. The problem was, though, they, they were waiting for the wrong thing. They were looking for someone perhaps who would be a political leader, who would rise up and help them overcome the Roman oppression. Or maybe they were a religious leader of some kind and they were looking for someone to ally with them against some other religious perspective. You know, one of the classic arguments of that day arose between Pharisees and Sadducees. And there were a number of key teachings that they differed upon that really defined the two groups apart from one another. One of them, for example, was resurrection. One group believed you would be resurrected physically, the Pharisees, but the Sadducees rejected the prospect of resurrection. They said there was no such thing. And there were a number of teachings like that that differentiated these two groups. So perhaps some of the men who came down to the river were looking for an ally. John the Baptist, he's got a crowd, he's, he's gained some notoriety, maybe he's on our side. Let's see which side he's on. It was all from a self-perspective, selfish perspective that these people came down and listened to him. Then there was perhaps some who just wanted to follow someone beautiful and charismatic and important and they're always looking for a hero. All these desires, all the many reasons somebody might have come to the river and followed John, they're as old as the hills. There's nothing new about why people went down to see John on that day. And the men and the women that we would find in our churches today, by and large, are exactly the same people, really, in many ways. We have needs, we have desires, we have goals, and we have agendas. And when someone speaks up and they bring a new message and they're popular at any level, everything that person says to us is going to be filtered through that lens we have of what we're looking for. Are they hitting the buttons I need hit? And if they aren't, well, I'm just going to keep looking. The news media love to highlight the growth, for example, of mega churches. I've noticed this lately. It's, a, it's kind of the story of the moment. 
uh, brought about, I know, by some of the more recent churches that have grown so big they can't help but be noticed. And that story about how there's this movement toward bigger and bigger and bigger churches, it, it is a phenomenon, there's no doubt about it, but it begs the question, who is in those buildings and why are they there? What is it they came for? And these churches, some of them I know, they're so big that, I mean, I think you have to park in another zip code to even get near the building in some cases. And that, that has the impression, of course, of success. And big isn't automatically a problem either. But the crowds that followed Jesus in his day were also very large. Very large. In fact, they reached sizes in some cases that rivaled even the biggest church we have today. And the clearest proof you need of that out of the Gospels is the story of Christ feeding the thousands and thousands that gathered on the side of the, of, of the Sea of Galilee and only doing it with fish and loaves of bread. The count that we're given is 5,000 men were in that crowd. Not counting women, not counting children. I would tell you that that probably rivals the, uh, any church in the country today on any given day. Could have been as many as 10,000 people in that crowd. That's what Jesus attracted. But in that very same story, when Jesus feeds them and then retreats across to the other side of the lake, the other side of the Sea of Galilee, he's followed by that crowd, at least a large number of them. And when they finally find him, he admonishes them. He says, you're not looking for the bread of life. You're looking for the bread to fill your stomachs. You got fed and now you're following me thinking I'm going to feed you again. And he's saying essentially what, what I think is going on here in this moment in Luke. There are people that will always follow for their own reasons. But simply following Christ without understanding the reason you're following him, you might as well not bother. It has no lasting effect. It is not of any spiritual value. And just like that day and just like the day at the shore of the Sea of Galilee, people are gathering today in churches for all the wrong reasons. Jesus will be their source of wealth, they think. Jesus will be their source for emotional comfort. Jesus is going to... Be the way they escape the misery of the world. He's going to be a social experience or an entertainment event. There's a thousand reasons people would come into a church on Sunday. And as long as that church doesn't ask very much of the crowd, then they're going to stick around for the show. But the moment there's any demands placed on most of these people, you'll see that truly they're not as interested as they thought they were. That's a false religion. It's no different than any other false religion. The fact that it comes under the title of Christianity doesn't make it any better. Now, if the choice, I guess, is have these people stay at home and watch football on TV on Sunday versus actually come into the church, um, clearly it's probably better that they come. But as long as they don't feel any pressure to think differently or act differently or, or see the world differently, then their coming is of no value to them or to the church. In fact, you could argue it might be damaging. And Jesus isn't going to let this crowd get away that easily. What I love about what Jesus does here is he knows there is a crowd around him that are not genuinely following him. And he's not content to leave it that way. He would rather divide, as he teaches in chapter 12, than allow them to remain together under false pretense. And so he's beginning to go after their purpose in following him and following John. And he says, John was a prophet. If you went out seeking a prophet, then at least you had the right idea. John was a prophet, he said, but he was so much more than a prophet. He actually quotes out of the Old Testament and out of Malachi chapter 3. This is a prophecy in Malachi that says before the Messiah's coming, there would be somebody who would come in the power of Elijah. And then before Christ's second coming, we now know, Elijah himself, the actual man, will return in a a similar role as John the Baptist did now. So if you wanted to draw a comparison, John the Baptist is to Elijah as Christ's first coming is to his second coming. 
That's how God has set things up in prophecy. And Jesus is quoting the Malachi prophecy about the coming of Isaiah now, here. Because he wants them to understand that's who John is. John is fulfilling the prophecy out of Malachi that said before Christ could come, there would be a man in the wilderness making straight paths for him. And if you only understood that that's who John is, well then now you understand what the point of his question is, right? The point of Jesus' question is, if you understood who that who John is out of Scripture, then you would also understand who I am out of Scripture. And you'd be following me for different reasons. John came as a forerunner to point people to Jesus. John's importance was not his own. It was because of his association with the Messiah that John could be thought of as great. And that's what Jesus means when he says he was more than just a prophet. He says he was the greatest among the prophets. He had the greatest honor of all the prophets because he's the one with the privilege of introducing the Messiah to the world. And that's why you should understand who John is. Not for the sake of knowing John, but for the sake of understanding if that's who John is, then my goodness, who is this? This is the Messiah. It is through the relationship that it should matter. And they're not asking that question. This crowd who's following Jesus is looking for the healing. They're looking for the miracles, but they're not asking the obvious question. Who is this man? The disciples of John come and ask the question and leave. And Jesus uses that moment to turn around to the crowd and say, you know, John sends someone from across the desert to ask me the question. You're following me around and you don't even know who I am. Why are you here? Remember, as I said, many of these people are the same ones who heard John the Baptist by the river. And what happened, of course, was Jesus came along and, okay, John the Baptist was good. But Jesus, I mean, Jesus, he's... Healing people. He's raising dead people. He's teaching people on dry land. I don't even have to get wet to follow him. And that's the attraction. It's the next biggest, greatest thing that's pulled people away from John. And the real irony here, of course, is that why did John come to point people to Jesus? These people have actually followed that path. They found John. Now they found Jesus. The irony is it's working, except their, their hearts are not turning. They are being pointed to Jesus by John's ministry. And yet they're staying with a dead heart, unbelieving heart. The irony is that they came to John for the wrong reasons and now they're following Christ for the wrong reasons. But they're following Christ. Look at how that passage ended. Luke notes two different reactions to Jesus' words. Luke takes note of how the crowd reacts to his words but makes clear there are two different reactions inside this one crowd which again emphasizes the fact that we have two people here. You have that first group that includes, he says, I love this phrase, all the people and the tax collectors. (laughs) As if tax collectors are not people, I think. He's really just talking about the ordinary man, the sinful, humble, ordinary man who knows he's there because he needs to be. And he's looking for Jesus to forgive and to heal, both physically, yeah, but also spiritually. And they declare God is just. That's what they're saying. God is just. He's doing things justly. Just like 1 John, the letter from John, 1 John, chapter 1, verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's the sense in which this crowd says, yes, God is just. And then there were the other group, this group that's principally, it says, religious leaders, Pharisees and lawyers. Again, not picking on the lawyers, I don't think so much, but rather the position within the religious culture of that day. You had men who set themselves up as the experts in the law. 
We're talking about the law of Moses. And that made them lawyers in that sense. They were the ones who would sit back and nitpick over everybody's life and make points where people were not following the law. You didn't follow the law? I found out, I pointed out, and I condemn you for it. They, it says, rejected God's purpose. I like that it's put that way in John. They didn't reject Jesus' words. Luke equates what Jesus said to God's purpose in and of itself. The very fact that they don't see John for who he is and they don't then see Christ for who he is means they're not just rejecting the the message. They're not just rejecting the thoughts and the words that are being expressed. They are flat out rejecting God's purpose, which implies to me that they understand to some degree what's going on and they don't like it. This isn't a matter of lack of understanding as much as it is a lack of agreement. I hear what you're saying, Jesus. I hear what you're trying to make me think. I don't like it. And I don't go along with it. I reject it. There must have been, then, I would imagine, an obvious division in this crowd. As you looked at the crowd, as they followed Jesus, there must have been like sides. Maybe in moments along the way, they would break out with, you know, taste great, let's fill it, taste great, let's fill it. You know, they're on both sides while they walk around with him. There's two camps here. Some in that camp obviously understood the message and agreed with it. Some, obviously, and we're talking here about the religious leaders, didn't. They probably didn't necessarily misunderstand it. They just didn't agree with it. But here's the question. Why are they hanging around? Why are they still there? Why bother following around somebody who you clearly don't agree with? Perhaps, I guess, they just wondered if Jesus could serve their purpose. In other words, I may not agree with you, but I don't necessarily have to agree with you As long as I can make use of you, as long as what you're doing can support what I want done, as long as you can be of some help to me, then maybe there's some value in you after all. And that's where Jesus goes next, because he knows that about these men. He understands what they're thinking. And now, having pointed out that they're not even looking at him the way they should, they're not asking the questions about him like they should, now in verse 31, he's going to move into an indictment of these religious leaders. And that's where this theme really comes back to the foreground. Now, the theme that Luke likes to provide time and time again of Jesus battling the Pharisees all the way to the crucifixion. Listen to where he goes in Luke 31, uh, verse 31. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another. And they say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he is a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. And this is where Jesus begins to address the disciples, or the Pharisees rather, directly. But he's talking about them in the third person, which is even more insulting, really. Have you ever been at home when you start talking about someone who's standing right there in the third person? If your mom's around, she'll correct you. That's rude. Don't talk about them. You talk to them. Because you're dismissing them. By the very fact that you're talking about them as if they're not there, you're indicating a dismissive attitude about them. Like you can ignore them. And Jesus is doing this for effect. It's not a rude act on his part. It's an attempt in the moment to reflect the fact that he knows they don't care about him. They're not there for the right reason. And he's talking to the crowd about how they don't matter either. Listen to what he says. And I want to explain a little bit what he's indicating by the phrases he's using here, by the statements he's using. 
He says rhetorically, obviously rhetorically means he didn't anticipate them actually answering the question. He says rhetorically, how can I best describe what these men, and he's talking here about the religious leaders, what these men of this generation are like. How can I describe their nature and their behavior? And then he makes a comparison. He makes a comparison to a very common scene, a scene that would have been very common in the daily lives of anybody who, anybody who lived in, in Israel in that day. But I would argue it's probably common for us as well, maybe in a little different way. In the marketplace, and you have to remember, small towns, they typically had one of everything. They had the one synagogue. They had the one or two wells. They had one place where business was conducted for trade, for you know, farmers bringing produce in in a marketplace setting, or uh, tradesmen selling their wares. So you had one location, really, for commerce in a small town. That's all you'd need. And in that marketplace, typically an open area, that's where the activity of the town would be. That's where the action was. It was the mall. That was the mall of the town. So if you had kids, and they had no specific duties, and they had free time, that would be the place to gather. And so you'd see a lot of kids running around. You'd see parents there with their kids. And in that setting, of course, what are kids going to do when they just run around like that? They come up with games. They come up with activities. And they organize around them. And in that day, there were games no different than there would be today, I guess except they didn't need batteries for the games they used to play back then. And so they would all get together in this little marketplace and they'd come up with a a make-believe game of some kind. And they'd all participate according to the rules of whatever that game was. And kids do this today, obviously. Imagination games have always been around. They always will be, I'm sure. But in an imagination game that requires multiple participants, you've got to have some rules. You've got to have some basis for knowing how to interact in that imagination game. And you've heard kids doing this, right? I'll be the, I'll be the policeman, you be the robber, and I'm going to do this and you're going to do that. And there's some, they almost act out like they're playing a, a, a part in some play. But it's all for the effect of coordinating their play. The games then really had sort of a script about them, sort of a a rule base that everybody understood and everybody followed. If one child would do a certain thing, like play a song, well, the other children are supposed to respond to the song being played in a certain way. In the way that Christ describes it here, I played a flute for you and you would dance according to my song. And then if I sang a certain kind of song, you would pretend you were crying over it and you would weep. And they're mimicking things they've seen adults do. They're just mimicking the life they see around them. There's a game like this today that children play. We call it Simon Says, where the children have a rule. You know, there's certain rules to how the game are played. Somebody does something, everybody else has to respond a certain way. We have Rover Come Over games. We have all these different little fun ways kids assemble and play outdoors, and there's rules. And Jesus says that the leaders of this day, these men of this generation, were like these children playing Simon Says. And they are only going to be happy so long as Everyone is playing according to their assigned role. And if somebody breaks out of the mold, if somebody stops playing according to their rules, they have a little hissy fit. You know, I played the flute and you didn't dance. You know, and they get that little pouting kind of response. And that's what Jesus is mocking them with this. He's making the point that according to the rules and the established ways of behaving in the religious leaders' minds, in the way things were done in that day, he's not responding to their rules. He's not showing the necessary respect that's due to these religious leaders for all the authority they have and for all the traditions they want to support. He's come along and failed to play according to the rules, and John did as well. What does a child do to another child who won't play in the game according to the way it's supposed to be played? Well, if they're one of many, that one will be excluded. No one will have anything to do with him because he's ruining the game. 
And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to ruin the game. Because the game led those who participated in it into hell. Because it was not a game based on faith and trust in God. It was a game based on faith and trust in the law and in the men who applied it. And in the men who tried to live it out. Its focus was, it was entirely wrong. And Christ said, I've come not to break the law, but to finally fulfill it so that you don't have to anymore. You can stop trying. And these men didn't like that because their authority, their power base, was completely rooted in the law and in the impossibility of keeping it. It's like a, it's a job that will never end. They'll never lose their authority within the, the people. They'll never lose their power within the people as long as everyone has to continue struggling to meet some standard they can't meet. That's their basis for keeping a stranglehold on the people. And Christ is coming preaching something totally different outside the rules. And in fact, it threatens to bring down the rules. And just like kids in the marketplace, they're not going to let him get away with it. They're not going to accept it. When John came, they criticized him. And now that Jesus has come, they're criticizing him. And just to make the point of how arbitrary and silly these men are with their rules, Christ points out the irony, the hypocrisy that was implicit in the rules. He says, when you criticize John, here was John, a man who separated himself from the world. He lived an aesthetic life. He ate nothing but locusts and honey, Scripture tells us. He, was, he refused to drink wine. He obviously refused to take part in most of what society would consider normal interaction. And we said when we studied him that he was set apart for a reason. But when he did that, they looked at him and said, you're, de- you're deranged, you're possessed. Because you won't live a life that the rest of us want to leave, their reasoning for dismissing John was that he didn't play the rules of living the life they, want to, they would want to see people live, the normal life of a person in a city, etc. But then Jesus... Jesus comes along after John. Now, he's willing to live a joyful life. He's willing to associate and, we might say today, party with people. He'll go into the home of a tax collector, in fact, and enjoy the company of those men. Sinners, in other words. Anyone who might be receptive to his message, he was willing to have time with and company with. He didn't lower himself to living the sinful life they lived. He didn't have to. He simply brought himself into their company and enjoyed their fellowship. But when he did that, the religious leaders respond to him by saying that he's a discredit to the name of religious leaders, to rabbis. He is discrediting himself by associating with sinners. He shouldn't be followed because he does have a good time. John shouldn't be followed because he won't have a good time. The point being, of course, that they'll use any excuse they need to to dismiss these people because they're not playing according to the rules. They don't have legitimate complaints. They only have a desire to have their cake and eat it too. And in reality, I think the problem was that neither man, neither John nor Christ, is going to dance to the song that the Pharisees are playing. Now, I want to be clear to you, however, about why Jesus is criticizing these men. He's, it's not merely their hypocrisy. It's not merely the fact that they are dishonest and that they, are, that they have false motives. That's not just his concern with these people. It's their desire to preserve a system that meets their personal needs rather than to seek after God's will. That's his biggest concern. Because all men, to some degree, are hypocritical at times. All men, to some degree, are dishonest. All men can be like these Pharisees on any given day if we're not careful. No, his bigger problem with them was they were not willing to relinquish their trust in this system that they had grown so powerful applying and instead embrace what God was doing. They weren't ready to make the shift when God was ready to show them the shift. 
And that's his bigger concern. They were serving themselves and not God. And yet, they're the men walking around with the stated uh, authority to represent God. They were God's men on the scene, if you will. At least that's the way they presented themselves. And yet they were not following God at all. And I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't make an obvious connection here to our day today, to what we can see going on in the church today. Just like in Jesus' day, we have men and women today in the church, not necessarily in leadership, but sometimes. And we've always had people like this. This is nothing new. The church has always and always will have people whose purpose in being in ministry and being in leadership in ministry is not about serving God, it's about serving themselves. The good news is they're not hard to find. Truthfully, if you look closely, it's not hard to discern those who are serving themselves rather than those who are serving God. They often follow a similar pattern. They have rules. They don't like it when you don't play according to the rules. And to them, the rules matter more than watching where God is going. One of the phrases I'm I like to use quite often when people ask me I have a, about a decision they're trying to make and they say, how do I know what God wants me to do? How do I know what I should do? How do I know if I'm listening to God, if I'm hearing from God? What I tell them is, what's the last thing you remember God telling you and you remember it clearly? You know that that thing, that last statement or that last direction you received from God, you know that that was true. You know that that's exactly what he told you to do and you have no doubt about that. What was the last thing you heard him say to you? Well, it was such and such. I'm supposed to do such and such. Well, then I would say, do that until you hear something different. Keep doing the last thing you were told until you hear something different. And when you're sure you've heard something different, start doing that. And again, until you hear something new, stay on that. And as simple as that sounds, most people don't think like that. They get some instruction and then they assume there'll be another instruction soon thereafter. And when it doesn't show up, they start improvising. Rather than assuming that maybe just the first thing I heard is all I needed to hear for now. There's no change needed. Men who follow their own rules stop the process of being directed in that fashion and just stay on whatever path they like indefinitely. And maybe start improvising their own changing along the way. What we want to look for are men and women whose goal it is to hear from the Lord and actually apply what they've heard, not to do any particular thing. One of the things we've said in here is that you know, God's plan for why we meet here on Sunday may be to one day be a huge organization with a big building on the corner with billboards and whatever. But I doubt it. I doubt it only because that's very rare. It may just be the case that we assemble like this for some period of time and then all move on to other things. And from this experience, God has prepared us for what he has waiting next for each of us. Or it's something in between, maybe. I mean, whatever it is, we never want to have a vision in our own mind about what we're doing here that's so set and so solid that we're not prepared when God changes it when he directs us to something different. And rather than go with him, we reject that and say, no, 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 I like the first thing you told me. I'm going to stay on this. And now it's all about us and not about God. That's the danger. Men have done that throughout history. My biggest concern is not the fact that these people exist in the church. It's that we might begin to be one of them if we're not careful. That's my biggest concern. I speak for myself as well. We never want to cling to tradition over truth. We never want to assume that the first thing we were taught is always the right thing. And we don't want to follow a teacher or a minister because we like their style or we like their words. We want to follow Christ, the truth in other words, and we'll go wherever he takes us, through whomever he takes us. Well, now Jesus ends his criticism of the Pharisees with this noteworthy phrase. He says that truth is vindicated by her children. And truthfully, that statement is actually a segue, a transition 
into the latter part of this chapter. And in fact, we're going to finish the chapter today. And we're going to finish it by looking at how the rest of this chapter actually supports this transitionary statement. This statement basically means you're going to know the quality of the tree by its fruit. That's another way you could state that phrase. Truth is vindicated by her children. You'll know who I am by the fruit I produce. And we'll know whether Jesus is in fact truth by the kind of children that his teaching produces, the kind of people that assemble around him and who they are and what they're like and the legacy that's left from him. Truth, we know from Scripture, is Christ. He is the embodiment of truth. Not only his life, not only his words, but the fruit of it, the children of it. And the story that we now get in Luke at the end of this chapter is a vindication or an indication, rather, of the truth of that statement. Let's go into that now, that last part of Luke in chapter 7, verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he, meaning Jesus, was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more? And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, this scene is remarkable for several reasons. First, there's simply this interaction that's taking place between Jesus and Simon the Pharisee that's so intriguing. In fact, this would make for a fantastic cinema scene. I could, if I'm a director, I could kind of play this out of my mind. I can see the expressions on their faces even. This is a wonderfully tense scene. There's a lot of intrigue here. There's a lot of tension in this scene. I want you to hear that in the words. These men are not friends. All right? This is not a, a casual, come on over for a bite kind of invitation that this man has extended to Jesus. He's not bringing Jesus into his home for pure motives. He's not on Jesus' side. He's not a supporter, and he's certainly not a believer. So, and, of course, Jesus knows this. So Jesus is entertaining the request, knowing that it's not really coming with honest intention. So there's a lot of intrigue and unspoken thoughts and feelings in the room in the moment. So it's all there, really thick 
And it's, it's really adding to the whole scene in, in a considerable way. Now, from the start, as we look at the scene described, it's, it's worth noting that Jesus is not shunning the Pharisees. I think that's an important message right up front. He knows the man's motives are false. He understands what these guys are up to. And he doesn't reject the invite. He doesn't say to him, I'm not coming into your house unless you're willing to accept me in an honest way. You know, if that was our criteria, we'd never minister to anyone who was an unbeliever, right? By nature, they're unbelievers. They're not on your side, so to speak. So it's important to understand that Christ is not somehow above going into somebody's home who is otherwise an enemy. And I would argue neither should we. That if it meant going in and being spat upon, being mocked, being cursed, being kicked out, so be it. I mean, we can go back to what we taught in chapter 6, if you remember, about what Christ said we should expect to see happen, and yet that's never an excuse for not going into the moment. And here he's proving that. He's living that out, even as he accepts this invitation. Now, he's accepted his invitation to eat, but there are some clues that we can pick up on in the conversation as to Simon's true feelings about Christ. Uh, let's set this scene a little bit, because there's some things going on here that are not typical for our own experience, and so you might not have the right picture in your mind about how the characters are seated, for example, or what's going on. Meals in that day were often taken on tables that were set very low to the ground. If you've ever eaten at like a Japanese restaurant, you could almost make a comparison. Tables, yes, but so short and so close to the ground that you can't sit. You have to lie down. Uh, you have to effectively recline. And that's what we mean when we say they're reclining. Uh, there's literally like a couch, but it's, it's a piece of fabric or cushioning that's so close to the ground that you lie on it. Uh, divan is another phrase for it. So if you have this divan, it's not going lengthwise paralleling the table. It's coming out from the table in a per- perpendicular fashion. And so you would lie on this with your head toward the table, your feet far away from the table, and you would typically hold yourself up, prop yourself up on one arm, and you'd have the other arm free, and you'd be pulling things off the table with it. So you're, you're sort of in this half-reclining, half-propped-up position, and they were used to eating that way. That was the typical style of the day. The head and the arms, as I said, were near the table. That would put the feet at the very end. And that's significant because you see the woman described here as being at his feet. It's not as though he's standing or sitting and she's under the table or, you know, somehow that she's in the way between him and the table. No, he's effectively looking at Simon, who's on the other side of the table, and she is behind him, completely behind him at the base of his feet, standing over him at first, it says, letting her tears wash his feet. So it's conceivable that as he's going through this whole scene, Jesus has never set eyes on her even once at the point where he's talking about her. And so that's what gives Simon the opportunity to have his critical thought. We'll talk about that here in a moment. But first, let's address the very fact that she's there. It's not uncommon in that day for poor people like this woman to be given access into a moment like this, to be invited into the home and to be in the room. Because if you were wondering, why was she even there? That's a good question. But you have to understand the motive, the reason why she's there. She's there effectively to beg for scraps and to gain anything she can gain off the table at the, uh, basically at the decision of the homeowner, uh, in this case, Simon. It's up to Simon whether she gets anything or not. And she's been allowed in, uh, presumably because he intends to give her something at some point. But you have to know why that's going on. Simon and his willingness to allow this woman to enter has nothing to do with his generosity. It has nothing to do with having a, a warm heart toward people in need. It's purely for show. In other words, had Jesus not been there, it's unlikely that Simon would have ever have allowed that woman to come in in the way that she did. He's simply trying to demonstrate generosity and piousness before Christ. 
So he is allowing her in, which was a common thing in the day, though it probably was not common for him to do it. So it's all for show. It's all just to make himself look better. So as they eat, this woman, as you heard, comes up and begins to attend to Christ. And she's kissing his feet. She's washing his feet with her hair and with the tears. Christ apparently showing no regard for it, not paying attention to it, in other words, not turning around looking at her, simply continuing with his meal with Simon. And as I said, Simon sees her because he's facing the opposite way. He can look past Christ and see this woman. And he knows her. She clearly is notorious, at least to Simon. She's only called a sinner. Luke is very kind, essentially, by not detailing the nature of her sin. But you could guess probably that it's, if not prostitution, probably something of a a similar ilk. Something that made her a pariah. Something that made her unforgivable in the minds of most of the people in that culture. So she would not have had any way to provide for herself other than prostitution because no man would marry her and she had no other way to provide an income for herself. And one of the rules that the Pharisees had applied under the law was that anyone of that nature would be, was so detestable that if they touched a teacher, a holy man, a Pharisee, a Sadducee, a lawyer, a scribe, a rabbi, they made that person ceremonially unclean. Be like touching a dead person. So the last thing a rabbi wanted to see happen was to see a prostitute touch them. And that's the nature of his comments. He's looking at this woman and he's getting quite a kick out of it. He's enjoying it because he's saying to himself, huh, what a prophet. This, this guy's supposed to be a prophet. He's supposed to know things nobody else knows. He's supposed to have God's intuition, God's insight. Some prophet he is. If he knew who this woman was, if he had true prophetic gifts, he'd know without even asking her, without even looking at her, that this woman was a prostitute. He'd have supernatural knowledge. And when he knew that, the last thing he'd do is let her touch him. Ha, some prophet he is. And he's gleeful over this because to him it confirms that Jesus is no one he has to be concerned about, no one of any significance. And then Jesus, knowing what's in Simon's heart, doesn't break stride, doesn't turn around, doesn't even refer to the woman. He just says, Simon, I have something I want to tell you. And of course, Simon doesn't know what's about to happen. And he sits there smugly and says, go, go for it, teacher. And even in that, Simon shows his lack of respect for Jesus because the man has been called a prophet, declared to be a prophet. Simon himself even acknowledges that in his own mind by saying, well, some prophet he is. But then when he addresses him, he calls him teacher. That's a lower station in Jewish culture. He intentionally called him something less than what the people around him were calling him. He denigrates him even in that simple way. Just a little stick at Jesus, even as he talks to them. And Jesus then offers this story of the moneylender. And the story itself is very simple. I don't even have to, I'm sure, explain any detail to you. It's obvious in in the way it's presented. Someone who has a greater debt, when they're forgiven that debt, feels far more uh, happy about it, far more thankful about it shows far more love and appreciation over it than someone who had a minor debt. That's a human nature. We all feel that. We all understand that. And we can understand the point, and I'm sure Simon understood the point, but you begin to sense Simon's reluctance to even participate in the conversation in the way he responded. I love the words he uses. He says, I suppose it would be the one who owed more. Um, That sounds like the obvious answer, but there's got to be a trap here. There's a trick. I'm not getting it, but... You know, he's afraid to answer, but the answer is so obvious he can't help but give it back to Christ. And in that hesitation to answer, he's sensing something's up. Jesus is going to get me. And as I said, just, you know, just a moment before, he'd been thinking, 
Jesus was such a poor prophet, he couldn't understand anything about what this woman was doing. And yet, now Simon's beginning to sense that question. I wonder, you know, it seems like it's picking up on something I'm thinking about. I wonder if he's starting to put two and two together even as he answers it. But even if he hadn't, even if he hadn't figured it out, Jesus' answer then knocks him over, I'm sure. He answers and describes how much more this woman has been forgiving based on how much more he's, she's willing to show him love than Simon is. Now, can you imagine the jumble of thoughts that's in his mind in the moment he hears that answer? I mean, he can't deny the truth of it. And he can't help but feel a bit awkward about having not been a good host. Because in that culture, calling someone a poor host was about as big a criticism you could, as any you could levy. It was maybe one of the worst things you could declare someone to be, a poor host. To not show the proper regard for someone who comes in under your roof. That was a serious offense. And he's made the statement to this man in a way that I can't imagine Simon could have ever really defended himself. And so he's, in the same moment, thinking terrible thoughts about how much uh, Christ is criticizing him over his hospitality. But then in that same moment, he's got to have that thought run through his head that says, wait a minute, how does he know my thoughts? Here's the prophet who couldn't know who the woman was, but apparently he did know who the woman was. And on top of that, I know what you're thinking, Simon. Talk about a 180-degree turnaround. But I don't want us to leave this scene, I don't want us to leave this chapter without recognizing who we are in this story. I mean, we know we're not Jesus. I hope so. If I have to teach you about that, see me after the talk. You know, Jesus came into this home in part to demonstrate the truth of what he had been saying earlier in this chapter, in verse 35, about children vindicating the truth of Christ. This woman being a vindication for him to the man in that room that my teaching produces love. My ministry is one that results in people showing love and appreciation. Your ministry is a hardened heart, a man who would not show love to anyone. And he says, not only does this woman prove that she believed in Jesus, he credits her faith, he says at the end there, for why she is being saved. But he also states, I can forgive sin. And they question that. That's a remarkable statement for them. He says, I can save you from your sin as I've done this woman. So we're not Jesus. We're not the one who's there to save. We're not the one who's producing children. But who are we then? Are we Simon sometimes? And that's an easier thing to dismiss, perhaps, than it should be. Because I would imagine if you think about it, you're probably more Simon at times. I'm probably more Simon at times than we're willing to admit. For example, do we live like we've had little forgiven? Do we live our life as if we really had what we had because we earned it? Does God owe us heaven now because we're Christian? You know, that thinking that says, I've got fire insurance now. I really don't need to think so much about the future of my life because I've kind of taken care of the salvation problem. And yet this woman was in tears sufficient to wet his feet over what she had been forgiven. And I have to tell you, we haven't been forgiven any less than she was. You know, having become a Christian, we can go back easily to our life of living according to rules and about our own plans for life. It's, it's, it's so easy. I've seen this happen. People are unbelievers. They have a very distinctive lifestyle on that basis. They become a Christian and things do change. But before you know it, they just slide into a new lifestyle, the Christian lifestyle, with all its rules and its rigor. And yeah, maybe it's better than the old, perhaps, because they're stopping some of the bad things. But it's got its new problems. And the new problem is it's just as rigid. It's just as unwilling to listen to God and be directed by him. It's just as rule-oriented as the old one was. Even if the rules are a little better, perhaps, it's not 
fundamentally a better place to be. And it's not a recognition of the fact that we're supposed to show love to others, not on the basis of when it makes us look good or feel good, like Simon was doing, but on the basis that we were forgiven so much that Christ not being here physically, not being available for us to do what this woman was able to do, we got to give that outlet somewhere. We have to take that desire to show the love that comes from a willingness to acknowledge how much you've been forgiven. We've got to show that somewhere. And Christ said, as he left to his disciples, you're going to show that love to the world because I'm not going to be with you for a time. Jesus said, those who do not recognize their own sinfulness have no idea of how much they need forgiveness. But those who understand it naturally want to express it. And the expression of our love for Christ, having been forgiven, is supposed to be directed to men around us, men and women around us, that they may know us by our love. There's only one right way for us to respond to our salvation. It's in the manner of this woman. The Pharisees, as I'll end here, could not accept Jesus because he didn't fit their desires, he didn't fit their rules, but maybe most importantly of all, they couldn't accept that they needed anything that he brought. That was probably their biggest failure. And it began with a failure to repent. Remember, if you don't think you have a need, you don't feel sorry for anything, you're certainly not looking for a new answer. Had they understood how much they needed Christ, they would have been repentant of their ways. They would have been seeking after what he taught. But because they didn't, they showed no love. I mean, if you've earned everything you have, why do you owe anybody anything? Love included. And in their mind, they had earned their right to be considered righteous. The world will know us by our love. And let's hope that God gives us that opportunity to, if not bring this message to someone in a specific way, perhaps just aid them in some way. Perhaps just be there to support them in some way. And then when they ask for the reason for the hope you have, you'll say, well, let me tell you a little bit about Christ. And then we'll see what God does with the rest. Let's close in prayer. Father, we are thankful. But Father, more than anything, we are regretful this morning. I pray that As the Spirit has impacted my heart, perhaps it's been the same for others, Father, that we must feel regret in all the ways, Father, we have taken what you've done for us for granted. That at times, Father, when we had opportunity to speak to others about the faith that we have, we've neglected to do that. When we've had opportunity to reach out and to support and to help others, Father, who needed it, we've found excuses, perhaps, for why we couldn't. And, Father, perhaps in all that we've done, we've simply not reflected the attitude that you've shown us in the gospel this morning for that woman, a woman who knew how much she needed forgiveness and a woman who understood how much she had been forgiven. And when she had the opportunity, Father, when Christ was in her presence, the only thought, Father, the only desire she could follow was one of showing him love in any way she could, in the smallest of ways, Father. All that she had, she did. Because it was more important for her, Father, to show Christ the love that he showed her first than it was for her to maintain her composure, to maintain her image, to worry about her reputation, Father. She knew she had none of that anyway. All she cared, Father, was to show love to the one who saved her. And, Father, we have had the same experience. We've all been forgiven of so much. We know, Father, that the Holy Spirit, as he's convicted us of sin, has shown us so many weaknesses. And yet, Father, knowing that we are secure by faith in your Son and saved by it, Then we turn and so often live a life that reflects little love, as if we had been forgiven very little. We know from the story, Father, that Simon had not been forgiven at all, for he did not seek it, for he did not 
believe he needed it. And so, Father, he showed no love. He merely mocked. We are not Simon, Father. I pray by faith we are not Simon. But neither should we look like him. And I pray, Father, that by the power of the Holy Spirit in each of us, if only those in this room, Father, perhaps those who would hear as well elsewhere, that we would step out from this moment with a new conviction, a new determination. We will not do the things we want based on our flesh. We will not serve ourselves. We will not seek after those things that merely make us look good. We will seek, Father, instead to love anyone you put in our path as if that person were Christ himself, that we could in that moment show the love that that woman showed. And, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that that person, when they receive it, would be so taken aback, would be so surprised, Father, that there could be such love that they would turn and ask about you in so many words. And we would be prepared, Father, to preach the gospel. And then, Father, according to your will, I pray we continue to study and continue to grow and mature in our faith. I pray we would have opportunity to return here next week, according to your will, that you would gather not just those here, but others, bringing even those who've never been. Let the word seek the hearts of those ready to hear and let it do its work. And we pray, Father, according to the words we've read today, according to the meaning they've been that's been placed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, we pray, Father, that we would be worthy for the opportunity to show that love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.